Berabin asks a question. Um, how are the DAO members going to get paid for the free work post-exploit? Well, that's ultimately up to the DAO to decide. So Beanstalk Farms, we've, we've been talking to some of the members of, with, of Beanstalk Farms about this, and the expectation is that heading into Q3, which I guess is starting almost immediately, the protocol is still not on. So there's really no budget to be had uh, for contributors. But the hope is that shortly after the protocol is back on, uh, the DAO would vote to both fund continuous development of the protocol and potentially also retroactively pay some contributors uh, for their work uh, in the time that the protocol was off and, and no one's been paid. So that remains a, a very open question and one that the DAO will have to collectively decide on the best way uh, to move forward to ensure that the protocol uh, is developed by a, a high quality set of contributors that uh, feel uh, appreciated. But uh, to date, there hasn't been any any friction between Beanstalk Farms and the DAO and being Sprout in the DAO, and no reason to expect that to change at this point, given how amazing uh, some of the contributors have been. Yes, and I'll, and I'll echo or um, say as well that there are no delays or there are no work not happening um, um, due, due to any, any of that. Yeah, which is amazing. I agree. Okay. Um, Publis, we, we have three BFPs uh, that are out there, and I think um, at least two of them um, are probably worth you know, having, having a bit of a discussion um, around. Um, I'll start with BFP77, which is you know, the curve A uh, factor or the, the, the curve A uh, parameter uh, for the proposed uh, being three-curve uh, pool. Can you maybe like take us uh, or give us a quick summary of what does an amplification factor mean uh, and what does a high amplification factor and low amplification factor mean before we dive in into um, the one that we proposed? Sure. So the starting point is that there's really two extremes uh, in terms of how you can define curve for an AMM. There's the constant product. Uh, which is what Uniswap uses, which is X times Y equals K. And then there's constant sum, uh, which is uh, X plus Y equals K. And basically, in the X plus Y equals K, what you're doing, if the AMM had that formula, is trading one, one bean for one uh, three curve or one bean for one LUSD at all points in the curve. And there's no change in the price. And the x times y equals k is, I mean, in theory, you could make it even more uh, volatile, but it is, the, it is a very natural curve that, in short, has a lot more volatility to it than uh, the constant sum formula. And so what Curve did was, as an innovation on Uniswap's constant product AMM, was they effectively allowed for you to toggle uh, some variation between the constant sum and constant product formulas as some sort of uh, combined formula uh, with which to deploy your AMM. 
and the A parameter effectively functions as the relationship between the constant sum and the constant product formulas. So a higher A parameter weights the constant sum more, and therefore the price trades at a dollar uh, or exactly at whatever it's pegged to for uh, more uh, in terms of size of the trade relative to the liquidity a in the AMM. So uh, as the A parameter increases, you're going to have less volatility in the price that you receive in the AMM. And as the A parameter decreases, you're going to have more volatility in the price on the same size trade. Okay. So let's talk about two scenarios uh, now. Uh, one which is a high demand uh, for beans and another one which is you know during a sell-off uh, period what would a high a parameter do on, on each of those uh, um, cases well the it, it's hard to answer that in short form because it would likely do a lot of things and what it would do would only be in comparison to other a parameters but in short the higher the a parameter at the same amount of excess demand or excess supply uh, of beans in the pool, the price would change less. So in terms of the price of a bean at any given ratio of beans to non-beans in a, in a curve pool, uh, the price that you will receive for trading against that pool despite the imbalance uh, is closer to the peg as the A parameter increases. So in practice, what you may have is the B in price trading closer to the peg while there is a significant imbalance in the pool. And that has been the case with MIM for a significant period of time. You can look and see that because they have a high A parameter in their main curve pool, uh, the MIM3 curve pool, there is a significant amount of MIM in the pool compared to 3 curve. But because of the high A parameter, the price is pretty close to a dollar. It's not a dollar, but it's pretty close to a dollar. And so the, the real function of setting the A parameter properly is a question of how much volatility in the bean price is acceptable. And the reason, or one of the reasons why MIM isn't at a dollar is because of the friction around AMM fees. And the fact that you have to pay a trading fee makes it such that it's not actually a perfect ARB to ARB the price back to a dollar. It's only effective to ARB the price back to close to a dollar once you consider the fee. And that's one of the reasons why the pool hasn't rebalanced to par uh, or to closer to par. It's because of the high A parameter in the case of MIM. So the arbitrage that you would expect to make money from uh, returning uh, effectively conducting the arbitrage where you're redeeming assets for uh, the MIM for the underlying assets, which in theory are worth at least a dollar, that arbitrage isn't profitable because of the fact that uh, there's transaction fees, and that's why the pool hasn't rebalanced. So in the case of properly setting the bean A parameter or the beanstalk A parameter, uh, I guess it's probably the bean three curve A parameter. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, the question is, well, how much volatility is acceptable in the bean price. And this obviously relates to, in the case of peg arbitrage, uh, convert. And when you consider that uh, the one of the goals of Beanstalk is to incentivize a, a high amount of conversions within the silo to regularly cross the bean price above and below the peg, it is a, 
it's a the one of the main considerations to probably be almost counterintuitively while you'd expect a high a parameter to result in a, a lower volatility in the bean price when you think about the health of the system even though it's a stable coin protocol it's probably more likely that a lower a parameter is healthier for the system because it will facilitate uh, more cost effective converts and therefore you're more likely to have oscillations above and below the peg which is the goal of beanstalk as opposed to having beans very close to a dollar but consistently above or consistently below a dollar Okay. Maybe I can close uh, the discussion around this proposal um, with with one more question. Um, So Curve has one A factor that goes for the whole pool. Uh, Uniswap V3 more or less allows the participant to choose, you know, how concentrated they want uh, their liquidity to be in the pool itself. One way to do this uh, uh, would also be, um, you know, um, for Beanstalk to natively uh, allow people to choose when to convert uh, as well. Where do you see the future of convert uh, going? Uh, would it be something similar uh, to you know a pool that's like Uniswap V3, where then participants just choose how concentrated they want their liquidity to be, or would it be something where we you know choose uh, when to convert or, or like an auto convert at a certain price? It's a very interesting question, and it's worth noting that one of the primary uh, maybe I should say one of the principles of Beanstalk's design is that users are the ones that decide when to act and that the protocol, uh, as minimally as possible, uh, you know, tries, tries to minimize, I should say, tries to minimize the amount of open market operations that the protocol ever makes. And it, it, in general, having some sort of automated convert functionality or uh, some sort of order book on the converts uh that's i mean the order books uh some sort of like uniswap v3 style because you think about a uniswap v3 it's really you're bidding on an order you're bidding on a curve, so you're placing orders on a curve uh the concept is you could probably mimic something within the silo where people can say i'd like to convert at a certain price uh yeah that's probably reasonable to do but at the same time uh you want to minimize the extent that that's gameable or, or, or arbitrageable and taken advantage of so not i don't know if that in practice would go against the principle of the protocol not taking any actions you know in theory now the user is setting the bids but the question is in terms of execution is it being executed in a way where the protocol is losing uh, you know paying paying some sort of market maker every time so that's what you want to avoid but uh, the assumption has always been that other protocols are likely to build things on top of the silo, and they'll likely handle converts in various different fashions. So uh, convert is, is, is designed to be a base functionality such that assets within the silo can be moved around with minimal fr- friction. But beyond that, uh, how participants want to structure their silo exposure over time, that's a very, very open question. I, I agree with you. Uh, convert as arbitrage and uh, to each their own strategy, uh, I guess. Okay, let's let's take some questions um, here before we go uh, to the second uh, proposal. Smith asks if there are any updates on the audits. Uh, let's see if Publis is around to hop up uh, as they've been communicating mostly with the auditors. 
I think uh, not. But the the latest update that I know of is no updates. Yeah. What? Not hold on. We'll see. Uh, maybe not. I think that's where I invited up the wrong Publius. So never mind. I'm not sure where they are. All right. Austin asks. Um, why open market operations at the protocol level are not desirable? Well, the, the main reason is that the protocol can be arbitraged. So to some extent, let's say Beanstalk is at the protocol level willing to buy beans at 99 cents and sell them at a dollar and one cent. Like in theory, that's great. Except in practice, that's going to facilitate some market participants to take advantage of the protocol, where they're uh, they're basically there's no risk in holding the asset because the protocol will buy it from you at the at the the lower price, and then there's no risk to shorting the asset because the protocol you can sell it back to the protocol at the other price. So just when when it comes to what the protocol then is doing. The protocol is basically taking the other side of arbitrary uh, market operations with a spread, and that's how you bleed out at the protocol level. So in general, you really don't want to have Beanstalk uh, being the facilitator of that, and particularly when you think about uh, what it is that prevents that from happening in general to participants in the system. It's the randomness associated with when people convert, when people buy, at what prices people buy and sell and convert, and therefore uh, it's not easy to game and take advantage of, particularly when you have a more sophisticated economy built on Beanstalk with derivatives and such. If you have at the protocol level some sort of guarantees that the protocol will buy at a certain price and sell at a certain price, that's going to be taken advantage of. And I think uh, this is a main differentiator between um, other protocols that have, let's say, a protocol on, li on liquidity, and then they have rules on, on what to do when. Uh, but being so then is it provides an, an ecosystem where it allows the market participants to, to, to react or do, do these uh, actions. Uh, is, is, that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we've been trying to look into a little bit more closely how Frax actually implements their AMOs and uh, have not have not had a lot of success at getting to the bottom of that at the technical level, but in theory they seem to be profitably performing uh, market operations, which is uh, you know it's fascinating. So the question is, how are they actually implementing it? So uh, not we we never like to say things are impossible because uh, people tend to innovate and build cool shit. Uh, so uh, just to say that from a principle design, Beanstalk assumes that that it can't. Uh, efficiently operate on the market. And the only time Beanstalk does operate is during a season of plenty, which according to one of the proposals is now being renamed a flood, uh, the protocol dumps beans on the market. And the concept is everyone should front run the protocol and sell, in which case the protocol wouldn't mint any beans. So the only way that Beanstalk is selling beans on the open market is if no one is willing to sell whatsoever. So those cases are very rare and uh, therefore, it's unlikely that a flood happens uh, in most cases. But that's the general concept is to minimize the amount that the protocol is acting because it can be taken advantage of. But clearly, Frax has 
some sort of innovation in terms of execution. And, and would you say the season of plenty is there to maintain PEG, not to profit? So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do that because it sees a profitable opportunity. It's there to maintain PEG. Correct. Okay. Betabean follows up on the earlier question about uh, contributors' compensation and asks, will beans be ripe or unripe? Again, it's not really up to us per se uh, or at all. Uh, I think Beanstalk Farms does have something like 2 million uh, unripe beans. Uh, and then any, any, I guess, ripe beans or normal beans, whatever you want to call it, uh, that, that would have to be minted via a noob DAO proposal. So unclear at the moment. Okay. We've reached the end of the questions. If anyone else has any questions, just um, write them at the town hall chat. Let's go to BFP 78, which is the minting uh, schedule uh, upon replant. So what BFP 78 says that upon replant, the minting uh, uh, capacity is going to be at 0%, and that's going to increase by 1% per season for the first 100 seasons until it reaches you know, full capacity of 100%. Why, why is that logic uh, put in place? Or what's the thinking behind this? So there's a couple things. One, any season with an unpause, uh, the, the, the price, the delta B is, is zero. And therefore, there shouldn't be any minting the first season or until the start of the first season. And, and the Beanstalk really mints at the end of the season. So the question is, at the end of the first full season, how many beans should be minted? And it's worth noting that the protocol uh, had a delta B of like 5 million or so at the time of the attack in terms of a shortage of beans in the pool. And let's say the protocol relaunches with... uh, the $10, $10 million in change that it has right now, which is something like 12, 13% of the total, you're talking about a delta B in the pool of $550,000, beans. And the concept is that you really wouldn't want the protocol to start minting 500,000 beans a season, given that in reality, uh, there's not any any ability to sell right because when the protocol restarts all of the recapitalized liquidity is going to unripe assets that cannot be uh recovered uh, or i shouldn't say it cannot be sold right if you chop your unripe assets and take the underlying uh and you sell it the amount that you're going to receive at the beginning uh is zero percent so there's not act and there's not going to be any pods harvestable until the end of the first season. So the concept is there's no sell pressure until the first season. And if the first season there's 500,000 uh, beans of sell pressure, uh, you know, I think the, the, the punchline is that uh, it's unreasonable to expect the market to be that efficient, where after one or two seasons, the whole thing will reprice itself and the minting will go towards whatever the the actual number of beans that need to be minted or soil that needs to get minted and allowing that to play out over a hundred seasons and gradually scale up over time 
is a much more conservative way for the protocol to replant. So uh, that the the I guess the original idea came from the fact that when generalized minting was going to go live and minting based on the Bean Three curve was going to go live, uh, a similar effect was in place because it was a five million delta B effectively in the pool or close to it. Most of the the delta B was from the curve pool, and so the concept is you can't just go from minting X to minting 10X. That's a crazy change. So you got to scale things over time. And uh, that applies to generalized minting, or it would have applied to generalized minting and how uh, it would have made sense to have implemented that. And now since we're launching, it still makes sense to do that. Okay. And what's the worst that can happen uh, here? Um, so we're, we're limiting um, the, the minting, uh, you know, the maximum output of it. What's the worst that can happen if we have like a sudden, you know, high demand and we're not minting enough? Yeah, I think that's the only risk, right? Is that there's excess demand for beans and the protocol isn't minting enough beans to re- return the beans to the peg. But that is a... I mean, that's like a, A, it's a great situation if there's excess demand for beans uh, to that extent. But B, that just, it's not a problem for bean stock. And particularly given that it will have a scaled minting schedule, if the minting doubles or triples or quadruples, it won't have any effect because the minting is still being scaled. So the, the concept is you allow over four days the market to price itself. And maybe beans are worth $2. Uh, maybe they're worth 50 cents, but you got to allow the market to price itself over time. And uh, given that the the minting schedule would really only affect the supply side, the risk is that the bean price pumps too high. And given given the way that the the unripe assets will still be able to convert, for example, and you will have fertilizer being paid back and, and uh, pods being paid back as the minting schedule increases, there's no reason to expect that sufficient supply to return the bean price to a dollar won't be minted over time. And it is worth noting that since the protocol is going to start at 500,000 beans or so uh, above peg, uh, let's call it that, uh, you can't have have it minting a half a million, a half a million, half a million, half a million for like a day, and then the price collapse to 80 cents. You know, that's, so, so to some extent you risk the price going higher due to the, the, the minting schedule that increases over time because you, you risk potentially inorganic demand uh, catching hold in the early days, but you'd really expect it to turn into mostly demand for fertilizer, particularly over those couple of days while the minting schedule is scaling up as opposed to turning into demand for beans. So it's not exactly, it's just you have to play out what is actually realistic and it seems like the safer course of action when evaluating how likely it is to have the system overprint upon replant, it's it's it, it's much more likely to overprint if you start at a hundred percent likely. And and it's a problem that will solve itself anyways with every hour. So with every hour, it gets better, uh, um, or it diminishes uh, the problem for one hundred hours. Okay. Um, that summarizes uh, both uh, BFP 78 and 79. We also have um, the last one, which is a change in terminology. All of these are, are up for voting. I'm actually 
not sure if the last one is uh, the terminology one is is up there. That's not yet. But the other two proposals that we discussed, which is um, the A factor and the minting, are, are out there for voting till till July first. All right, Publius. There have, we have discussed discussed this um, um, recently a bit, and there is a continuation of that discussion, which is about the being if uh, uh, pool, and then the possibility of you know um, um, allowing uh, a convert between those pools. Can you take us through the thinking right now? What are we thinking about this? So replant, then being if, then what? Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of different questions, right? And to some extent, the liquidity pools, let, maybe let's just answer the liquidity pools exclusively for me. Uh, and, and we can talk about what else makes sense to put on the roadmap for after a BNE pool. But just thinking about what other pools it makes sense to whitelist over time. So there's two different functions that a pool really has in the case of Beanstalk, or that it can have. One is as an oracle uh, for a U.S. dollar, and the other is at, at, as some sort of exogenous source of value. And Ethereum, as we're all seeing uh, or being reminded of uh, once again, uh, is very volatile. And while Beanstalk launched with a beneath pool and lived and died by the early ETH volatility, it was certainly a pain in the ass in the early days. And as the Bean 3 curve pool grew in magnitude relative to the beneath pool in terms of liquidity, the effect of the Ethereum price on the bean, the bean price decreased, which was great for stability and for efficient price, price discovery. Now, at the end of the day, though, the problem is that 3Curve is largely centralized, and USDC and USDT are centralized, and then DAI is largely backed by USDC, which is centralized. And so, unfortunately, it's it's kind of a, a deal with the devil, right? Uh, any of the exogenous value that Beanstalk uh, accrues in liquidity pools uh, that is in the form of the recurve at some or any point could be rubbed. Um, and the that's, that's, that's a major issue when you think about the short-term stability of the bean price. And while you have ETH volatility, that affects the bean price. You know, it's it's hard to it's hard to say that some volatility is better than an all or nothing. Like it's very clearly that some volatility is acceptable and or preferred as opposed to all or nothing. So the bean ETH pool is very important. Then you think about what other value is decentralized and less likely to go straight to zero. It's either a one or a zero. LUSD is very interesting although the amount of exogenous value you can have from LUSD is very correlated to the Ethereum price and limited by the Ethereum market cap. So it's, if you're looking for exogenous value in size, it's sort of hard to know where that comes from, particularly if you're looking for decentralized exogenous value. So this is one of the, I think when, you're, when you take a big step back and look at the, the major philosophical questions to answer about beanstalk it's where does exogenous value in size come from to provide liquidity for beans and how to make it such that how to make it such that the the exogenous liquidity available scales with beanstalk and i think 
You could make the argument that at real scale, the Ethereum price starts to be really affected by demand for ETH in these liquidity pools, and therefore the exogenous value can scale. But that's a highly, uh, you know, that's a feedback loop that can unwind very quickly. And if you have the interest rates on beans that are uh, causing there to be demand for ETH, when when you have short-term interest rates for beans decrease, that's going to decrease the amount of a desire to hold ETH to, tr- to receive those interest rates, and that's going to cause a decrease in the price of Ethereum, again, assuming this is all at size. And that creates a negative feedback loop whenever that starts to unwind, and that's what you really want to avoid. So the question is, how do you, how do you both minimize your exposure to Ethereum and minimize your exposure to centralized uh, stablecoin options uh, as more stable sources of exogenous value? Uh, these are, you know, this, there's a couple of different ways to go about answering it, but they're all, uh, at this point in time, imperfect. Yeah, thank you uh, for that answer. Uh, I, I have a, a question um, that's, that's more evolved around what's happening in the overall um, um, DeFi space uh, right now. And we're seeing that a lot of, a lot of markets or a lot of, uh, let's say, um, entities are, are, are having a challenge which is mostly attributed to to leverage or high leverage uh, and we've had you know a lot of people didn't think that prices would crash you know this low and you know many of them got liquidated and this liquidations you know caused a further uh, spiral down and we would say that most leverage comes from you know what we want to think speculation or driven by inorganic demand the thought the thought that you know this is going to you know come up with more and more and people get leveraged on that what can beanstalk do to, and, and we do this as already by not incentivizing inorganic demand, but what can Beanstalk do to limit or inhibit uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that speculation, let's say? And, and is that even possible? Do you think, you know, Beanstalk can, 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 can even do that? So you can't limit the speculation, but what you can do is uh, minimize by design or in practice the amount of the demand that is speculative demand. And so what else is there other than speculative demand? And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing so much unwinding happening in the current state of DeFi. It's because it was basically all leveraged speculative demand. Well, beans and the interest from beans currently is all from speculative demand. The interest that you receive is from people buying beans and the reason they're buying beans is because of the interest rate. And to some extent, it is very important that in the early days, Beanstalk, in order to establish beans as money, uh, works without having any real economic activity happening within the system. And it first establishes that the model at its core works purely from incentives. But, and this is a big but, excuse me, in order to move away from just a purely closed speculative system, you do need to start to have real economic activity happen within beans. And given that the main attraction of holding beans and using beans is the interest rate for holding them in the silo, it's highly likely that that economic activity is going to happen on top of the silo. So betting markets on top of the silo, to me, stands out as uh, the biggest uh, potential real economic activity that can happen in the short term on top of the silo. And over time, as beans become more stable, it's very possible that uh, 
trade and commerce start to be denominated and take place in beans because of the ability uh, to receive yield and the stability in the bean price, which makes it a very attractive currency to use. But you got to start somewhere, and it's likely that the exogenous demand or the real economic activity uh, that is organic, let's call it, and not from just the the and we've we've used inorganic and inorganic uh, organic and inorganic demand differently. But let's talk about uh, demand to use the beans uh, for economic reasons, other than just holding them in the silo. Uh, that is likely to to decrease the amount of speculative demand as a portion of total demand, if that makes sense. Yes, and I'd like to follow up on this. So we said there could be two reasons uh, for demand for beans. One is speculative, and then the other one is to use it, you know, as a stable coin or use it as a store of value. Um, do you think it makes sense? And I'm thinking loud uh, here uh, that let's say, you know, if the price of uh, bean is above one for a certain period of time, then any new demand that comes in doesn't get seniorage or gets less seniorage for a certain period. This allows uh, the use of uh, bean as you know uh, uh, as a medium of exchange or a sort of uh, value but but not uh, so much uh, attractive anymore for speculation so first i just push back and say you can also have beans used as a medium of exchange and uh perhaps the one of the cool things about beans in the silo is that they're both a store of value uh and a medium of exchange and they're, they're a, st a stable in denomination and accrue interest, which makes them very unique. Now, in terms of limiting minting to new users in the, or new depositors in the silo, on the one hand, that may create a decrease in inorganic demand uh, when the price is above one, which is attractive. But on the other hand, it may create some sort of misaligned incentive to keep the price above one if that makes sense now it's it's probably not likely that at the margin any one party is going to have enough of the silo such that it's meaningful for them to keep the price above one uh instead of letting the price oscillate normally in line with uh whatever the supply and demand is at the time but once you, if you if you if you, if people were around in the early days around the season of plenty uh, it's very hard to coordinate uh, all of the silo members uh, to keep the price below a dollar to reset the rate. And that's one of the things that in, in an efficient market, you really don't want there to be reasons for people to be buying and keeping the price too high, uh, which, which sometimes plays out because of uh, the, some sort of rule written to the protocol like that. So we'd have to think a little bit more about it, but uh, if anything, the implementation that uh, of a sim achieving a similar goal that probably makes more sense, although is likely more difficult to implement, is that the beans that are paid as seniorage uh, are received over time, and so uh, you know you receive them over a certain number of seasons. And if you deposit quickly and withdraw quickly, then you obviously receive a lot less of the seniorage they, than you would have because it's paid out over time. But uh, multiple ways to skin this cat. Okay. 
there's a question also in the, in the economics uh, channel, uh, and, and this is something that we've discussed, but maybe you can um, give us a summary a bit of it, uh, which is, again, what does positive carry mean? So positive carry is the cost to holding a position. Or, well, I should say carry is the cost of holding a position. And so positive carry means that you get paid for holding the position, which is the case for beans that you're holding or LP tokens that you're holding in the silo. And uh, the concept is that being long beans or holding exposure to beans uh, comes with uh, a, some sort of payment in the form of bean interest, which you're, so you're getting paid for holding the position, which is positive carry. So would you say that it, it is, um, depending on a currency uh, that you can have, um, if the expansion of it increases, who gets paid for it? Uh, would it would it be would it be something uh, as such? So let's say I'm holding you know some USDC and then the, the market cap of that in, it increases, uh, then there is a cost for me to holding it that I sh should have or could have you know done something with it, uh, and I don't get any of that uh, uh, growth of it. Uh, when on the other on the other hand, uh, having something uh, th such as the silo or the seniorage based system, uh, those who are participating in it are the ones that capture the growth of it, and this is where the positive uh, carry comes from. So who gets paid when the currency is basically used? Well, I think we're, we might be mixing a couple different concepts here. Uh, where, the, where the carry comes from, that's an interesting question in and of itself. Uh, in the case of Beanstalk, uh, it obviously comes from Bean Seniorage, which is inflation. But unlike another protocol like Ohm, for example, where you could make the argument there's positive carry because you're getting paid tokens to hold the position. The The payment of the the carry for holding the position is independent of the price or the value of the position. And so you're actually taking a trade on the carry relative to the change in the underlying, which I guess is the trade you're making in every case and, and also in the case of Beanstalk. But because beans are only minted when the price of a bean is above a dollar, there's some expectation that the seniorage that you're paid uh, is interest as opposed to uh, some sort of uh, financial outcome that either you won the carry trade or you lost the carry trade uh, because of the, the change in value of the underlying. So because the bean seniorage comes by rule only when the bean price is too high, uh, you can, it, and again, it's, it's just different ways of thinking of similar things that are happening, but the the interest that you're paid or the carry for holding the position that you're paid uh, only comes about when the value of the underlying is stable. So uh, you could make the argument there's a, and there certainly is still risk in the, the price of the bean uh, changing, and that's the risk of the trade uh, relative to the carry that you get paid for in, in terms of being seniorage. But the, I, I think the, the, the classification of it as positive carry is fair, uh, given the fact that you're receiving the interest by rule only when the price is too high. Okay, thank you for uh, clarifying that. Um, Salon asks, what is the upper bound on the replant timeline? 
do we have a deadline that we you know we can, we have we have to restart there or no no upper bound uh, I think everyone is working as hard as humanly possible to get make sure that once the audits are complete there's no uh, additional issues uh, obviously the goal is to to replant properly and without any major hiccups and so however long it takes to get to the point where that is the case it'll take what it'll take the you know uh, certainly don't think that this will push us into like something crazy like q4 but uh, you know and let's say this sort of in ab, ad absurdum uh if it if it took that long it would but betting obviously the heavy under that hopefully uh sometime in july we'll be able to replant this bad boy uh there's the protocol was was launched originally on august 6th 2021 uh it would be painful for us if if it was if the 2022 launch was after that so uh not a not a strict upper bound but uh i mean that's still five five weeks away or so we would certainly hope it would be before that a mental upper bound Amir Hadelberry asks, what's the team's thoughts about regulatory risks and what the response might be when the pressure comes? Well, there's always going to be risk to, in terms of the effect of the bean price and the risk of holding beanstalk assets. If, for example, governments decided to make holding those, those assets illegal, uh, but that aside, uh, or maybe another risk would be uh, the operators of USDC being forced to blacklist the USDC ETH Uniswap pool or the three-curve pool. Uh, those types of things certainly pose risk to Beanstalk in terms of how the protocol currently functions, but not existential risk because the protocol could change and react uh, and derive its price from, from other places. Even if the, the the peg may be slightly less accurate, you can get a decentralized uh, price uh, for a dollar. Uh, in in almost all cases, the question is really, uh, what is the realist? What is the likelihood that any of those uh, issues to USDC happen? For example, uh, or or in a more extreme case, people are banned from holding crypto assets or beanstalk assets. Uh, but that aside, Beanstalk doesn't really care. So Beanstalk is a piece of software that exists on the Ethereum blockchain and is autonomous. So uh, upgrades to the protocol, unfortunately, currently aren't fully permissionless and autonomous. But other than that, you know, there's no reason for the protocol to change uh, and and implement things that, that the government would want it to implement. The, the goal of Beanstalk is to be totally free from any... any I, I mean, I guess the, the government could... It's a proof-of-stake system, so the government could buy enough stock to, to implement bits that would, that would enforce certain laws that they wanted enforced. But that aside... There's no way for the government to impose these things on Beanstalk. So Beanstalk is designed to be resistant to any sort of regulatory pressure of any kind. Amir Hadelberry asks, KYC ML pressure? And same answer. Yeah. Okay. I think um, this is the end of the questions. 
um, and you know what I also had uh, uh, in mind uh, to discuss. So we can give it a minute if anyone else has another question or someone wants to come on stage. Otherwise, we can call it class. Okay, Publius, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. And see you next week's next week's class. Thank you, man. Talk soon. Bye bye.